on the flight deck. Crews are now manning for the next launch. Time to clear the flight deck and catwalks. Stand well clear of all jet blasts, prop arcs, and exhaust. Time to start up the go aircraft. Let's start them up. All right, welcome back to the F-14 Tomcast episode four. And today we're going to be talking with Sam Slammer Richardson about actually flying the F-14. Crunch, something that viewers can look forward to is when Slammer talks about learning the trick and how to become a good F-14 pilot. Yeah, you're, you're right, Bio. And one of the best quotes he had in there was that it's an easy airplane to fly, but a hard airplane to fly well. So stay tuned. Buckle up. Here we go. Hey, everybody. We'd love it if you could stay tuned. Later in today's show, we're going to have some announcements for some giveaways that are coming up soon. Hey, hey speaking of, hey, hey, Bio, where'd you get that hat that you're wearing there? And that mug? Oh, oh, this? Oh, this? Will Crunch, I got these from the fighterpilotpodcast.com shop merchandise store. Do you have uh, any of this stuff? Well, I might have found the mug myself. I haven't got the hat yet, though. Got to got to get one of those for sure. Fighterpilotpodcast.com slash shop. Is that right? That's it. All right. Sounds good. Let's get That's back to the episode. Hi, I'm Craig Snyder, call sign Crunch. And as you may know, I am an, uh, a former F-14 pilot, former Top Gun instructor, and I have about 2,500 flight hours as well as about 650 traps. And I'm Dave Baronic, call sign Bio. I was an F-14 Rio. I also have about 2,500 flight hours and about 650 traps. Welcome back to the F-14 Tomcast. Now, we dedicate one episode to the Tomcats AUG-9 and AIM-54, and for that episode, our guest was a Rio. So today, we'll be talking to a former F-14 pilot about another feature of the Tomcat that set it apart from the fighters that preceded it, its impressive maneuverability. Grumman incorporated lessons from Vietnam combat into the design of the F-14, including the requirement for robust maneuverability, outstanding visibility in the cockpit, and more. To explore those features, we're talking with former Tomcat pilot, retired Captain Sam Slammer Richardson, who is well-known in the community for his piloting skills. Welcome, Slammer. Thank you, Bio Crunch. Uh, great to be here. Thank you. Hey, it's good to see you again after uh, being at Miramar together uh, so many years ago. So, Slammer, to get us started, uh, tell us where you're from and how did you get into Tomcats? Well, originally I'm from San Diego but uh, was a son of a, a naval pilot, and we traveled all over the world, east coast, west coast, um, uh, out to Italy, out to uh, Hawaii, and then when my dad retired, uh, moved up to Julian, California. And so I'm basically a local San Diego uh, uh, product, but with a father who was a naval aviator, uh, always had my eyes set on naval aviation. All right. Well, hey, uh, so, you know, Slammer, you and I, we've known each other for a long time. Uh, but for a lot of our listeners, they, they might not know all that much about you. Uh, can, tell us a little bit about your F-14 experience. You know, what, the span, the arc of your career, beginning to end, what'd you do? Okay. Um, well, went to UCLA on an ROTC scholarship with the idea of going to uh, flight training. Um, had a uh, electrical engineering degree coming out of UCLA, 
and moved down to um, Pensacola to start my naval aviation career, but I always had the, the, the objective of getting back to Miramar and flying the Tomcat. It was, uh, it was a dream aircraft uh, as, a, as a kid growing up, and I just wanted to be able to fly that. Plus, my dad was a, a fighter pilot during World War II, um, had a number of kills uh, in that conflict, and so I was always, always wanted to be a fighter pilot, and the Tomcat represented everything I wanted uh, in that aircraft. Uh, now to do that, the, the way naval aviation training works is every stage they give you just enough time to be barely proficient. And so whether it be in academics or primary, um, they, would, they would basically give you just enough time to learn how to you know, safely take off or land the airplane, uh, handle emergency procedures, fly instrument, instruments, fly acrobatics. And what it did was it, it basically spread out the people who could learn quicker, I think, than the others. And those who could learn quicker and react faster tended to, you know, kind of pop out toward the top of the class. And as you worked your way through, it was the top of the class that tended to get their, uh, their desires. And the ones who could, could think far enough ahead of the airplane seemed to go into the jet community. And once again, you go into uh, jets. And for me, I stayed in Pensacola in VT-4, which at that time was a strike, uh, intermediate and advanced strike uh, pilot training squadron. And at each phase, you would now, now with all the jet guys, you would once again start in the T-2, and you'd learn basic uh, formation, basic instruments, basic handling, and then carrier qualifications. Um, and a little bit of other uh, basic uh, tactics that, that uh, um, you were introduced to. And once again, you would be ranked ag again about how quickly you could pick up these things, and then you would be kind of stratified, and those toward the top of the class would get their, their selection, and those that didn't do as well may not get their selection. And so for me, I went through T2s in Pensacola, uh, performed very well there, jumped into the A4, uh, did uh, well there as uh, two. But at the time that I finished, which was April of 85, uh, there were no Tomcat slots. And, um, <clears throat> and so the, uh, my squadron CO rolled me back as a surgrad instructor. Oh, nice. And so to be a surgrad instructor, you had to be in the top third of the class. And so I got another bonus 18 months, which killed me because all I wanted to do was get to the fleet and uh, get into the Tomcat. Uh, but that wasn't a, an option when I went through after until after I finished my uh, instructor time. Slimmer, this is I, I got to go. This is really a great explanation of the training command. I'm serious. So yeah. so this is good. Yeah, but yeah, keep yeah. going. Yep. Um, so anyway, I finished uh, finished up there the uh, I guess probably December of '86. And uh, made my way back out to, to Pennsylvania, or back out to California to Miramar, uh, and it was just it was just the, the the happiest day of my life to be making that trek back west, uh, and go to the uh, famed VF-124, the gunfighters, uh, and start off flying fighters out of Miramar in San Diego. Uh, there wasn't anything better in life. Uh, it was it truly was a, a remarkable existence back at the time. 
the class that I, uh, I joined up with, there were five, uh, as I remember, there were five pilots uh, and five Rios in our class. It was, I think we started in January of 87. And the five uh, pilots, we were all surgrads. And so as a, the, the advantage you had as a surgrad is you came in with an extra 800 hours of, uh, of experience. And so if people made it through uh, uh, training command right into the fleet, they would show up with maybe 250 hours, maybe 200, somewhere in that range. For us, we would show up with uh, close to 1,000 hours. And so the, the difference in any sort of airplane between 200 hours and 1,000 is an awful lot of situational awareness. And you just come at the, at the training with a little more mature sense of of understanding of aerodynamics and um, all things related to, you know, seating the, uh, you know, sticking throttle and, and um, uh, basic handling and flying skills. So we, we ended up showing up there with a little bit of a head start over uh, over other folks, but it was funny because all five of us had all come from that uh, surgrad community. So I think we had a, a pretty strong class as it was going through. I bet you did. That's, That's that, the, the Every surgrad that I've ever you know, come come to my squad. They always have, they're always a little bit better than everybody else. Well, you have that air sense and you only get that air sense, you know, after um, spending time in the airplane and seeing different situations that you may not have seen before. Uh, and for us, you know, we were junior uh, aviators as instructors with even more junior students trying to kill you on a regular basis. And so you, you got introduced to an awful lot and you, you, you uh, were always spring loaded to something going wrong in, in a number of cases um, that happened. So you do show up with, with that type of um, uh, just awareness, situational awareness, I guess I'd say. Yeah, that's pretty cool. So now you, so you went to the fleet. What was your first fleet squadron? I, I don't remember. It was VF-114, the Fighting Aardvarks. Ooh, you had the orange flight were, suit. They were renowned in, uh, in uh, Miramar as being the most obnoxious squadron because they had those orange flight suits. And if you know, you're I was in just an orange say that, flight so. suit, you, you have to stay as a pack <laughs> because you stand out. And, uh, and it's kind of funny because as, as you go through the, the rag – uh, and for me going through the rag, it was about a, oh, I guess I started in, in the January, February timeframe and finished up in around, de uh, December. So you've got about nine months of, uh, of training. So you, you were introduced to the, all the different, uh, squadrons at Miramar. And, and when it finally came time for me to make my selection, when I'd finished in carrier called, I went up to the OPSO who was cookie cook at the time. And he says, Slammer, where do you want to go? I go, I go, Cookie, I want to go to any squadron, but that squadron wearing orange, the Aardvarks. And he said, congratulations, you're going to the Aardvarks. <laughs> I thought, oh, my God. Oh, sounds like the Navy. Yeah. <laughs> yep. But they were, they were uh, deploying in just a few weeks. And so uh, they needed somebody who had, uh, who had performed well at the boat and who had, could basically go on deployment right away. Uh, and it was the greatest thing ever. It was the most fabulous squadron. Um, there were two, maybe three squadrons at Miramar that stood out. VF-2 was one, typically stood out. VF-1 was another. The Aardvarks were always right up in there uh, for one in battle efficiency, one in the mother. I mean, everything. It was 
it was a fantastic squadron. That's awesome. Now that brings up a good point. So you talk about the squadrons that are standing out. They're probably they're not standing out because you know, of the, the fancy flight suits. They're standing out because of the people, the, the pilots, and, and the way they yeah. carry themselves, how good they are in the airplane. You don't win the battle E as the battle efficiency award that you referred to by being a bunch of slack, by, by not being good. So, you know, you probably had yeah. a whole bunch of great, you know, mentors or people to guide you while you were there. You know, were those the department's heads, other lieutenants that are there just a couple of years older to you? Who were they and uh, what they teach you? Well, we were so. I, I think I would I would say that the uh, the squadrons that were strong and perennially strong always had a strong front office. You had a strong skipper, and and focused on the right things. They were focused on on tactical employment. They were focused on being the best. They weren't caught up in the minutia. And for some reason, you would see some squadrons that that you know weren't really focused in the way that 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 I would always be, you know, expect a squadron to be focused on. And so we had a very strong uh, skipper. Uh, uh, the department heads may not have been the strongest, but they were, there were a couple that were standout. Um, but the lieutenants, we had some great lieutenants. And uh, in a fighter squadron, you got a bunch of good, uh, you know, the junior officer, the JOPA. If you've got a strong JOPA, you've got a, uh, you got a solid squadron. And we certainly had that with the uh, with the Aardvarks. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the key people that we had so so two dogs trainer or excuse me, um, uh, tra- uh, Cobra trainer was a Rio and he was our skipper and he was a Vietnam era guy knife in the teeth. Uh, you will fly the airplane. You will beat the other guy. I mean, really, uh, you know, set a great example. Uh, Don Bringle. Uh, was one of the department heads. Uh, he was my uh, flight lead, and um, oh, that's good. Yep, and so uh, and that'll play a little bit later in my life, uh, uh, later on post Top Gun. But uh, but he was my flight lead and a, an outstanding human. Uh, but the the lieutenants, you had uh, probably four or five really really strong lieutenants. That uh, unfortunately none of them stayed in the Navy. They all went out uh, into the airlines, but. Uh, Really were very, very good uh, examples and very good sticks. So it was a, it was a good group all the way around. Okay, so I'm dying to ask this, Slammer, and I, and, and you know, we're being candid here. Uh, so so you, and this is something that I didn't really think about back in the day. But you're a junior officer. You got KD as your uh, section lead. What kind of stuff? Uh, and again, one before I say the words, you'll go bio. You never were a rag instructor, were you? But I'm going. What kind of stuff was KD or the other guys teaching you to make you a good pilot? Were they saying slammer, go up and and try a rudder reversal or do what you, whatever you you know? Give us tell us tell the audience some stuff. Uh, how a young guy becomes a good Tomcat pilot? Yeah. Well, then I'd have to go back and go back to the rag. Okay. The, uh, and actually, even before that, when 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 I went through flight training, the um, when I got into A fours, which is the very first time you really start flying air combat maneuvering, um, there was just a, a sense that 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 you got as to. I remember this one time that that um, um, I don't remember. It was a one v one, and I found myself really overshooting the instructor, and. 
for some reason, I just thought this isn't going to work out. And I did a freaking a lag roll over the back of them that had not been taught before, but it seemed to make sense. And I maintained that, that offensive position uh, coming into the rag. <laughs> I, had a guy, I had a guy like Pogo Clark, who was yeah. one of the, one of the very, very famous Tomcat pilots and God, God rest his soul. Um, just a fabulous human was a blue angel and just a great stick. And nasty Manazer was another one um, that you you would uh, you know kind of emulate your your uh, uh, your flying after, and they would they would be there describing okay you know how to how to position the the Tomcat, uh, and the Tomcat I would say is um, is a very easy airplane to fly. I mean it was designed and I think it was a very easy airplane to fly. Now I see your face crunch. It was a very, it was a very, very hard airplane to fly well. Uh, that, okay, I'll I'll buy that. Uh, that's, that's the key. Very true. And so you had a lot of average people out there who could you know maneuver the airplane, and it was basically you know safe because the, I mean you had these big long wings, and it was a safe airplane for just basic maneuvering, but to fly it well was very difficult. And uh, and you only, I mean, and you. You could name, you know, very quickly those outstanding Tomcat pilots. Snort Snodgrass, God rest his soul, who just passed away uh, a couple weeks ago. Um, like I say, you've got Nasty Manazer who could fly a great airplane. You had Killer Killian who could fly it around the boat like nobody's business. And, um, uh, and Pogo and, and a few of these other people. Um, so, so it was very distinctive who could fly the airplane well. And then everybody else, and so you kind of you, you learn very quickly who who you wanted to kind of listen to and and uh, model yourself after. Um, and they wouldn't they wouldn't teach you tricks. It was really you would you had to learn the basics. You had to learn energy management. You had to learn you know the 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 um, where the Tomcat had the advantage. And where the Domcat had a disadvantage, and where you wanted to stay away from. So, um, the the in in the early days, in fact, for most of my career, even my command tour, I was flying the F-14A, and they were notoriously uh, underpowered engines, and they were designed that way because it was a mix between uh, high speed and afterburner, and then loitering, so you can have a long you know long endurance for these these air uh, superiority. Uh, missions that you fly, and so the there were times that that it didn't matter if you got slow, but it was always when you were on the top, and if you got on the top, you could sell it all, and it had hellacious pitch rate, and you would you use that to your advantage, and then there were times that if you got slow at the bottom, you were going to have your hands full, so you learned what where to stay away from it. And, uh, and where to maximize your advantage and minimize your disadvantage. And so it, those were the things that I remember and I focused on. And it wasn't so much, boy, if you just do, you know, pull the stick this way and do rudder that way, it'll be automatically and you win. It never yeah. happens that way. Yeah. And so I will tell you, some of the students that thought, boy, if I only knew how to, if I could only do this one maneuver, I would win. And you missed the whole package because... That was just one move, but you're fighting a series of moves and series of counter moves. And if you're not, if you're not understanding what's happening, then you're just going to be, you know, 
it, you're going to fail and you're going to wonder why. So, Boy, I did that maneuver, but I didn't survive. Yeah, Slammer, I tell you, it's uh, you're 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 bringing me back uh, a little while because I remember back when I was a young Jo. Um, and I was trying to figure all that stuff out and, and you just didn't get enough. You didn't, you never felt like you got enough time flying the airplane to really understand it. Every time you'd go be like, Hey, I got a one V one today and that's awesome. Or I got some uh, air combat maneuvering time. I get to go up and fight it, but then I don't get to fly for another three days. And, and I would always sit there and I'd be reading in the, the Top Gun manual and trying to learn these tricks. And I'd go talk to some of the guys who'd been around for a little bit. And, uh, you know, sometimes we, we just sit around and trade notes, you know, and talk to other guys. And, uh, mm-hmm. uh I, I don't know. I found, I found that I would, I, I didn't realize how little I knew about flying that airplane until I was already at Top Gun. And then right by the, after three years at Top Gun, I left and I was like, wow, you know, man, I, there is so much, so much that I've learned that I don't know. And, uh, you know, meaning that there was still so much more to learn. And I, I know that. Me personally, like you talk about the airplane being easy to fly but hard to fly well, I can think back to being on deployment as a department head and just going out and going, you know what, I'm going to try this thing that so-and-so told me about one time. And you sit there and you go, wow, that actually that actually worked. And I can I can add that to my game. Because as you said, like if you're, in a, if you're in a fight and you just think about this one turn, you know, hey, I hit the merge, I hit the one turn. I, yeah, I I don't know about you, but I'm probably going to lose pretty quickly in the next two or three. Because I'm, I'm going to bet if I hit if Slammer and I are hitting the merge together, and I'm just thinking about this one, he's you're thinking three moves ahead, right? Right. And and so that's the difference. Yeah, exactly. And if you're not thinking three moves ahead, and that takes a long time. I don't know. I was I was probably yeah. well into my time at Top Gun before I was effectively thinking three moves ahead. Right. You know. Yep. And it was interesting. I mean, later on, I ended up being the uh, the skipper of the F-14 RAG. And um, and so all the RAG instructors were all the top of their squadrons. You didn't get a RAG instructor who wasn't number one or number two. And uh, and it was funny. So even there, I would fly 1v1s. And uh, and I remember the, the F-14D babies. Mm. And Crunch, I know you were a D baby. Oh no, uh, no, it's not true. I, oh no, 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 no. I flew the okay. D in the end. I started off as F14As. I have like a thousand hours in the A. Half my time's in the A. All almost. right. Yeah. Well, I was flying against D babies, and so like you're talking about, you know, students that would rely on the one move. Well, D babies would re- rely on their motors. They had the mm-hmm. GE motors. They were fabulous, uh, very high powered. But they thought that's all you needed was this thrust. And I remember I would I would actively seek out flying the F-14A against those guys in D's. <laughs> and I would destroy them because they didn't understand basic fighter maneuvers. They thought that all they needed to do is, you know, use these big motors. And and I hate to say it, this one time, I, uh, it was a 1v1, just instructor versus uh, myself. I'm in the A, and we do two dogfights, and it ends horribly for him both times uh, because the same thing. He just thinks all you got to do is is put those big motors on and make a big loop, and you're, I'm sitting there in an A going, all I need to do is get inside his loop, and I'm shooting him, and, and, and the, it didn't register. Um, to the last, last engagement, I told my Rio, who was an instructor Rio, I go, I'm going to fly the F-14A in mill. Ooh. And I'm going to beat him. And here it is, an F-14A in mill against an F-14D rag instructor. 
and he made a fateful error, you know, nose low at the merge where that's perfect for me. And he's got a big turn. I've got a small turn and now I'm shooting him again. Wow. So that was the, the people who relied on either a trick or their motors and didn't understand the basics of basic fighter maneuvering were the ones that didn't do very well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's what Top Gun taught you. Right. That's what yeah. Top Gun was all about. I hope that a lot of real aviation fans and Tomcat fans, and especially the DCS, the flight simulator players, I hope they watched, you know, the last 10 minutes of what you guys have been saying, because you're just talking about the necessity to really be a master instead of a trickster, you know, or, you know, to to boil it down. Mm -hmm. So, so uh, Slammer, do you have any uh, good stories about going through Top Gun class as a student? Uh, What year did you go through the class? Uh, And, and did that help, help your, uh, your Tomcat pilot skills? Oh, absolutely. Without a question. This was in the old days when there was, I think it was an eight-week class. Um, now what they're doing now, which is a three-month class or something, and, and the training is much better now, I think, than it was um, back when I went through. But they, it, the class I went through, and, and shoot, I got to think it might have been in like 1989. Um, huh, okay. Cato Cook, it was four Tomcats Tom and four Hornets. And the four oh, time that'd cats, be awesome. Yeah. yeah, it was a class of eight. And uh, Art Deco, Starrett, and I were in, in the Aardvark Bird. Uh, she Boy White Cell, who is now Air Pack, uh, was a Rio and a RAG instructor in with, um, oh shoot, I forget his name. Um, two East Coast guy, uh, squadrons, two West Coast squadrons. And then the, the four Hornet squadrons, two of them were, were Marines, and Cato uh, Cook was one of them. So out of that class, we ended up with Cato Cook being a Top Gun instructor, me being a Top Gun uh, instructor, um, um, one guy being an Air Wing commander, one guy being Air Pack. So it was a, it was a good, grump, good group of folks there. Um, but going through, going through the course back at that time, you always started with 1v1s, and, and, uh, and it, it really made a lot of sense. The, the Navy spends an awful lot, at least it d- did at that time, a lot of time and energy on 1v1 skills. And it, it's the foundation for everything else that goes on. And, and at any given time in, in, a, in a multi-ship dogfight, you will find yourself 1v1 against something. And so it really honed those skills that you had to be able to defend against that other aircraft, uh, fight it to the best of your ability to allow your wingmen to come in and maybe uh, uh, be in an offensive position and shoot them. Or even if you were in a last-ditch missile D, where you're getting shot from a surface-to-air missile and you do your hardest 1v1 maneuvering around that missile. It's the same skills and the same physics and aerodynamics that all apply. So they spent a lot of time focused on the 1v1 aspect of it. And that's where you, you did learn how to fly that airplane um, and, and, uh, and really fight it to the best of its abilities. And so you always avoided getting in those positions that you knew you couldn't recover from. You maximized the advantages in those areas that, that you knew you had a, a, uh, um, uh, an advantage over another aircraft and, um, and really honed those skills. So they started with that. And then you'd move into section tactics, um, 
and now start to, you know, go into more um, mission-oriented operations and activities. And so you start with section tactics where two of you are operating together, and then you go into a four-ship, and then you go into strikes where you're, you're performing different missions, whether it be MIG sweep, uh, have a cap, all the different missions that a, that a fighter would, would uh, uh, you know, basically be assigned. And you would learn each one and how to maximize the, the overall capability of the package that you were uh, involved with. And back at that time, they would, they would um, uh, basically craft the mission around different threat scenarios. And so not only were you, you operating and learning the basics of just tactical employment of your airplane, but also if you were in a, 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 a Korean scenario, what would the Koreans be doing based on their, their fighter tactics so that you, could, you would train to them, you would, uh, you would go out and fight against them, see what they look like on radar, learn how they popped up from behind the hills, and you would have been exposed to that type of threat, a Soviet threat all of the different threats. And so you'd work your way through to not only flying your own airplane to the best of its ability, but also being introduced to all the different combat scenarios that you might find yourself in. And so you would, you would be introduced to that, you would react to that, you would, you would build in that, that, um, that experience base that now you, could, you wouldn't be seeing it for the very first time if you found yourself out there. And that's how Top Gun was, was structured at that time. And then for us, we would go back as, as um, you know, Top Gun trained uh, lieutenants back into our squadrons, and then we would teach those tactics, you know, or those basic fighter maneuvers or those threat tactics to the squadron. And that was the, the idea at the time. That's awesome. So, yeah, so for the for the listeners, it's interesting. You just uh, touched on a thing. So they're Top Gun back then to Top Gun now. This is probably what 1989, 1990. Is that what? I was, so I went through as a student in '89. I was an instructor from '90 to '93. Gotcha. Okay. So and so what would happen is back then, uh, you know, you're in the fleet squadron. You go to Top Gun. You go back to your fleet squadron, and then after that, you would then go on to be a Top Gun instructor. So you would just be like, "Hey, I'm an accomplished fleet pilot. I have been through Top Gun as a student, and now I show up as a squadron." Uh, or as a Top Gun instructor, as my short first short tour. When I was there, it was different. So this fast forward about 10 years, and it has now moved. It's no longer in Miramar. It's now in Fallon, Nevada. And the course is longer, and it's uh, it's it's a little bit different. There's more strike stuff, um, still similar setup. But then you don't show up. You don't do it as a JO, or I'm sorry, you don't do it as part of your fleet, your first fleet squadron. You finish your first uh, uh, fleet tour as a, as a lieutenant, your first short tour. You go to Top Gun and you just say, "Hey, I am now a Top Gun instructor." But you got to go through the class, graduate, do well enough to stay, and then keep going, um, which is actually it, it's kind of crazy if you think about it. But it has worked. But it is a little bit yeah. different now than it was back then. Now I know yeah. that when I went through, I looked. So it's interesting. So I'll, I'll jump in on you, Crunch, yeah. real quick. The um, um, it was really interesting because the model was based on the on the um, um, the Vietnam, you know, experience. Mm-hmm. And for Vietnam, they wanted to give people an opportunity to get you know have that that combat experience, that simulated combat experience before they went back 
to Vietnam and, and they wouldn't make the same mistakes um, that they did then. But as, as I found out though is students going through Top Gun didn't automatically go back to their squadron and become the training officer. In some squadrons, the CO put them in a different position where they couldn't really, you know, influence the rest of the squadron. And there was something weird there that that we saw as a, a fundamental failure. And and you would see it now. You now I'm an instructor at Top Gun, and you would see the students from all of the different squadrons come through, and you would see some that were like VF 51 students were always good because they had a tactical focus and they were well-trained. Other squadrons were just horrible. The students would come through and just, they couldn't do the basics. And so it really, it was really hit or miss based on how the squadron CO used the Top Gun um, experience that his JOs had. And we found that as a fundamental flaw, which led to where you were, Crunch, you know, Fast forward yeah. four or five years later, because right. it was at the end of my tour in 93 that we started to shift it to the Swifty program. Oh, okay. And we, we were fundamentally changing things because we saw the flaws that the current uh, situation had. And you would have a person coming through with 500 hours and not really have the experience that you needed when you really wanted to get a guy with about, or a gal with 1,000 hours because you're so much more on the on the step, and they could be much more influential once they got back into their training officer positions. Mm -hmm. And so that transition happened right at the end of our my tour, and and led to what I think is an absolutely um, much better training uh, situation in, in naval air. So well, uh, I agree with you, Slammer. I got to give Navy Air credit for making those changes that you guys have just described. I mean, it it is a, a it's nice to see them realize we can improve this and then make the changes uh, and do it. Correct. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say, there's a whole bunch of things like I'm, I'm bookmarking in my head as you talk through there. Cause there's so many different <laughs> things we could talk about in there. You talked about the 500 hour yeah. pilot coming through. I got something on that. Yeah. Uh, we talked about changing right. to the SFTI program, which for the listeners, the strike fighter tactics instructor, and that's the new syllabus program. Um, and you also talk about, um, the support for Top Gun. And what I think the listeners, we, I don't know if we want to go there, but let's talk about it. If, if We can always change it. But uh, the listeners may be surprised to know that, I mean, there are people who, I, let's call them Top Gun haters, right? There are, I don't know why, well, yeah. but if you might have one of those COs that just doesn't feel that it's valued, they don't care for it. There are plenty of people I've met that they just don't have a respect for it for whatever reason. I don't know. What's your experience? Is, is no, that new to me? That's absolutely true. Okay. That's absolutely true. And you would see that. Um, and you would know that by what they did with the student that came through the course and how they were utilized. Um, and and there, were, there were squadrons, and I hate to say it, Top Gun was at Miramar, was on the West Coast. There were a lot of East Coast squadrons that that were not, did not buy into the program. And even when we got into the SFWTI program, the Swifty program, there were some East Coast squadrons that once again did not buy into it. In fact, so I'll, I'll jump ahead. I had the great fortune of after leaving Top Gun, right when they were, right when we were pushing AirPAC to change the syllabus, that two years later, after I went to my department head tour, I came back to be the, the director of the Tomcat Strike Fighter Weapons School. Mm -hmm 
with the very first Swifty students. And I remember Chaser Keithley, um, Grumpy Kimberly, uh, Obie O'Brien, Opie Taylor were the very first Swifty Tomcat guys. And I took them all over the West Coast. They were believers in Miramar. And I took them on the East Coast to all the different squadrons. And thank God the weapons school uh, skipper at the time, who was an A6BN, I believe, and even Long Aquilino was there at the time. They they uh, embraced us and allowed us to go to the different squadrons. And some squadrons didn't want to deal with us, and others welcomed us in. Um, and that really was the, the beginning of the Swifty program within the Tomcat community. So mm. I was really fortunate, timing-wise, to be involved with both. So I, I want to make uh, one clarification, and this is also, you know, for the audience. And that is to say that not all good Tomcat pilots went through Top Gun. I mean, there were some guys that did not go through Top Gun, and yet they were still excellent, outstanding yep. Tomcat pilots. But yep. Top Gun was very good training, and and the comments at Crunch and Slammer made. And But another thing on a positive is the Swifty program. I mean, I was away from uh, Tomcats for a few years, and when I came back, that program had been implemented, and I was just amazed and impressed at how uh, it it raised the uh, level of uh, you know lethality and effectiveness of, of the average junior officer. So, so bio, I'll I'll tell you one thing that maybe maybe known, maybe not known. Okay, remember what Good. I said about the skipper? Yeah. In our staff X's and Crunch, you remember, and, and Bayou, you do remember that as well. In our Top Gun staff X's, one of the reasons we designed it the way we did was to take the skipper out of the equation. This was a course that was a criteria level one, two, three, four, and the skipper did not have the choice or the ability to change it. Man, that's very interesting. That's good. That, I mean, it worked, but. Yeah. And so, so you either had skippers that embraced it or didn't. But the fact is you had air pack that, that rolled this thing out. This was the training curriculum. And that yeah. what we did by that was we raised the floor of all squadrons. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it was, sure it was wildly successful. It, and, and just for the listeners, so that, uh, you know, to, to share with them what we're talking about. So the Strike Fighter Tactics Instructor Program, SFTI, uh, was a graduate of Top Gun in the new syllabus. And they came back to the fleet or to the weapons school. So wait a minute, that's the person was the exactly. graduate. Exactly, exactly. That's the SFTI. So and they, they administered basically the SFWT program, the Strike Fighter Weapons. Weapons and weapons, tactics. Weapons, Thank tactics. you. Uh, syllabus. And you had four four levels in your combat wingman. And I think there were like somewhere around 15 flights and they were standardized. Flights one, you would do this. Two, you do this. Mm -hmm. You had learning objectives uh, on each flight. You had uh, a level two, which was a combat wingman. Level, no, I'm sorry. Level one was a rag student. Level two was a combat wingman. Level three was a combat section lead. And level four was a combat division lead, meaning four airplanes. Right. And it was standardized throughout the fleet. And in the beginning, I know when I was there, this was 96 when it was rolling out that I was learning to be going through the level two program. And, uh, you know, some squadrons you could see were really embracing it. And it was 
really yep. good. And then I remember it was a struggle to get my level three check ride. And my squadron, we tied it and said, you want to be a, a section lead? You have to pass your level three check ride. And it was yep. very difficult to get it scheduled between the assets, the adversaries, the ranges, the, the instructor from the weapon school. I think you were there at the time. Um, it was difficult to arrange all these assets. And oh, by the way, I need two good radars and two good airplanes and everything else. Right. And next thing you know, you're like, you get one shot at this once a month to pass this check ride. And I remember it was a real challenge, but wow, did I learn a lot. I was the product <laughs> yeah. of this system that you put together and oh my God, was it amazing. I personally learned so much. It made me such a better pilot. Absolutely. Yeah. No, and it was, it was the shared wisdom of a bunch of lieutenants that said, we've got to make this better. And, and where it really kind of stood out to us is we would have both Navy students and also the Marine Corps students. Well, the Marine Corps would not send people with less than that weren't already WTI called and about a thousand hours in the airplane. The Navy would send people there. I think the minimum was 500 and you could wave it down to 300 hours in type. And the disparity between that, between the capability and just the, the, you know, the head work and the air, air sense of somebody with a thousand hours versus 500 was stark. And so that was by sitting there and observing that we said, we have to get better. We're wasting our time with, with people who just aren't capable of really pulling everything they need out of the syllabus. And, and that's why you wouldn't go into the SFWTI program until the end of your first tour. And then you would, the uh, or complete it, and then and then be considered for an instructor position. I guess I ought to uh, clarify that. Um, and then you would go back as an instructor, much more experienced, and have this very very well standardized training curriculum uh, to make you much more effective in the range of tactics and missions that you you would be flying in a Tomcat. It was really a, a, a tremendous program. Yeah. That's amazing. That's amazing. So it's funny. This is not the direction that I think Bio and I had intended this conversation to go. We were, we were like, hey, we're going to talk about stick and rudder and flying the airplane. And holy cow, this has been a great conversation about the uh, the, the birth of basically the, the modern Top Gun program. It's absolutely amazing. So I, in that note, uh, so when you were there, you know, before you, as you're developing this new system, what was your SME area, your subject matter expert area? What was yours? So I was a, the section uh, tactics guy ah. for the Tomcat. So there were there were two key t key um, um, uh, curriculums, the one v one SME and then the section lead SME. At my time, it has evolved into mission planning, and there's some other things that are uh, much more, uh, uh, I guess, probably much more important now. But at the time, <clears throat> those were the two key. Um, uh, courses and trim downing was the one v one guy, and I was the section guy. Um, <clears throat> so, and I, I wanted it that way because I loved one v one, you know. But from a combat perspective, section tactics was was the basic formation and the basic um, mission portion, and I really was focused on, you know, the execution as a as a, a larger sense rather than the the one v one skills. Um, which I love to fly and I love to, I loved 1v1 more than anything, but I thought from a mission employment perspective, section was a more influential and had bigger impact 
on squadron operations. So luckily I got that. So, so just for all the listeners, section is, you know, two airplanes. So we're employing two against an unknown number, 2v2 or 2v7, could be anything like that. And so what you're talking about, not only maneuvering as a, maneuvering the airplane through the sky, but how you actually target the groups, how you employ the radar, how you shoot the missiles, and basically the ranges you're shooting, your timeline, all of that stuff, right? Well, mm-hmm. it, it had to be integrated with the intercepts lecture. I don't know if they still had intercepts, but I think oh, sure. combat section tactics might have picked up where the intercepts finished or some, maybe. I mean, right. so the, I was the re- F-14 intercepts me. Right. And so for the Rios, they had that course. Mm. Oh, we had, oh, I had, I had pilots in Rios and, and it was very important to me as a Rio instructor to, and I mean, of course I, my murder boards were, uh, were demanding, but I, it was not a combat F-14 intercepts was not a Rio course. It was for mm. pilots and Rios, you know, anyway, yeah. but I think section, but crunch, some of the things that you're saying were, would have been covered in intercepts. Ah, gotcha. But it, but the courses evolved also. Right. I mean, you know, they may not have even had intercepts by the time Slammer came along. So um, Top Gun keeps uh, evolving. Yeah. <laughs> it does. It does. Well, and I, I think the evolution is good. So Slammer, you, one of the things you said, you talked about uh, uh, combat section tactics probably went away. And, and my summary was that in the early years of Top Gun, they seemed to do more about the mechanics. And then as the squadron evolved, you know, uh, you guys have said that one v one is essential anytime you're in combat or one yeah you, know, you know, but the Top Gun class emphasizes more mission employment, uh, you know, to be very broad, right? While it still insists on excellent one v one maneuvering, you know, talent. So, so the great thing with and, and they they really hammered that part uh, in the course because you would start you would start one v ones week one. And by the end of that week one, you were pretty good. And then for the next four or five weeks, you would go through all the different mission elements against all the different threats. And at the, at the very end of the course, and you hadn't been flying a whole lot of 1v1s. You were doing slashing attacks, keeping it fast, you know, shooting, defending, driving in, getting the, the strikers on target. Um, and then at the very end of that, you'd have your graduation 1v1. So you had not been thinking about it at, for a number of weeks. And the grad 1v1 was probably the greatest uh, event ever designed, ever designed. So pretend I purpose. don't know anything about the grad 1v1. Yeah. How, tell, tell our listeners about it. Many of them might be like, oh, my God, that sounds awesome. I've never heard of it. So the grad 1v1. Like I say, it was it was many weeks after you had finished your one v one curriculum, and and hadn't really had an opportunity very often to fight a, a very long engaged one v one. And so, the whole student population and the instructor population would all get into a single briefing room, and everybody would be handed an envelope, and no one knew who they were going to fight, what type of aircraft they were going to fight or anything about it and you had rules that you couldn't cheat for the tomcat we had a long-range television camera system and if they caught you turning that on so you would see what you're going to fight before you hit the merge you know they'd they'd, uh, you'd be branded a 
branded a pussy. Sorry for the audience. <laughs> but they would, they would brand you. And the idea it was that you would end up on a, a, a point in space with a frequency and you would call and you had a goon call sign. So I was goon 24 and you knew you were going against goon 33. And we had a frequency, but you didn't know if the goon was an instructor, if it was another student, if it was an F-18, if it was an F-16, an F-15. You didn't know what airplane that person had because you would have guest players that would be invited in as well. And so you'd have this mass brief, you'd walk out, and you'd have a, a showtime, a latitude, a longitude, and an altitude, and a frequency, and a goon call sign. And that's how you started it. And you would do your intercept that you were talking about, Bio. And all of a sudden, you would, you would see what you were fighting. And in that split second, determine what type of fight you needed to fight against that type of airplane. And it was, you, you know, you're, you, it was. Okay, fabulous. so what was yours? Who'd you fight? Uh, you know, it's funny. I don't remember who I fought as an instructor. Well, because I fought yeah, do you so remember many. Who, what kind of airplane you had? I mean, I had, we had an F-5E as our opponent uh, for my grad 1v1. Yeah, I think I think I was a – as a student, I think I ended up with an F-16, an instructor in an F-16, and I was a student in an F-14. Um, the uh, – and I know I – know, it, but anyway, it was, and so you, 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 you see what type of airplane this is. For an F-16, you know it's got a high G rate, a high turn rate, great thrust to weight. And so you had to do, you know, everything you could to intimidate with the nose, get inside, get as, as, a, a, as high a pressure fight as you can against that airplane, just to minimize the strengths that it had. And, and you would have to very quickly formulate that because you're hitting the merge at about 1,000 miles per hour. Uh, combined, a thousand, yeah. maybe twelve hundred miles per hour combined, and it, the cl- the time was clicking down, and so you had to hit the merge, decide real quickly how you wanted to fight it, and then just everything you had, go after it, and uh, and it was a blast. It was so much fun. Yeah, I remember my when I went through as a student. I remember I hit the merge, and uh, it was a Strike Eagle that was at the merge from when I was a student, and I remember I found out afterwards. Uh, I was like, oh, wow, they, uh, you know, I, I did okay, we'll say. And uh, I remember finding out afterwards, I'm like, yeah, they, uh, they actually were weapons school instructors from Nellis. And I was like, oh, oh right. They, uh, yeah. they must not do much air to air down with the Strike Eagle. <laughs> I was like, right. <laughs> but, uh, but then, way to go through. Well, yeah. And then I know another time where I hit the merge, I was an instructor. I felt pretty good with myself. And I was in an F-14A, and I hit the merge with Roscoe Ross is in the other side, and he's in a slick F-18E, brand new. And, of course, Roscoe was yep. the skipper of the lids at the time. And, of course, I'm sure he told yep. us, you know, hey, slick that thing off. I don't want to win. So, you know, so I hit the merge, and I'll just say, ooh. Yeah. Roscoe's well, pretty Roscoe, good. <laughs> Roscoe was in my uh, student class as well. Yeah. I forgot. Yeah. Yep. Well, he, Amazing. I know him a long time, yeah. and I remember I hit the merch. I was like, oh, crap, it's Roscoe, and he's in a Super Hornet. <laughs> <laughs> I got my work cut yep. out for me today. It didn't go well. <laughs> Not for me. Um, 
Hey everybody, this episode today is supported by our good friends over at Heatblur. Heatblur is world famous for their high fidelity flight simulation aircraft, which are the next best thing to actually flying the airplane. If you'd like a chance to win an F-14 Tomcat module for Digital Combat Simulator, send us an email over at questions at F14Tomcast.com. Again, that's questions at f 14 tomcast.com and in the subject line we don't like you to write the word heat blur so h-e-a-t-b-l-u-r heat blur in the subject line the deadline for this giveaway is tuesday november 2nd 2021 again that's tuesday november 2nd 2021 and uh just please note that this f-14 module does require the free dcs world in order to run and the module itself is valued at 79 dollars 99 now, we're going to choose two lucky winners from the entries received and announce them in that next episode and check into future programs for some more exciting giveaways. All right. Good luck. Okay. I'm going to do our listeners a favor, and I'm going to drag Slammer back to the main topic, and that is do some bragging on the F-14 in terms of what were some of the good things you liked about it in the engaged environment. I mean, we know it was designed – it had to have good, you know, uh, uh, maneuverability. Uh, so, you know, years later when you're flying it. Well, I tell you, the, the uh, in, a, in a, so I'll, I'll narrow it down just to the 1v1 arena. Okay. Because um, yeah. we could spend all day on the, on the way it was designed against the threat it was designed for. It was designed around the, the AUG-9 and the AIM-54 Phoenix weapon system. No, talk about Long the fighter range. pilot. Fighter pilot engaged, right? Yeah. Um, the um, uh, like I said, the the I, I I fought in the A, the B, the D, and I fought against A, Bs, and Ds. The best pilots that that the Tomcat produced, in my in my view, were all F-14A drivers, um, because they they had to maneuver their airplane uh, much more effectively if there were going to be any good at all, because you were really making up for that, that uh, energy deficiency that you had with the TF-30 engines. Um, and they were, it basically forced you to fight slow. And, and the Tomcat actually was a pretty good slow flying airplane. Uh, I only used the flaps one time in my career and there was a specific reason I did that. Um, but there were many people who really sang the praises of the flaps. And when you fought slow with full flaps, it was a, incredibly impressive airplane um but i'll tell you the when you were on the receiving and i was in an f-16 uh and you're looking at the nose of a tomcat coming at you in close proximity it is very very intimidating and so you would you would want to keep the fight as tight as you could uh hopefully get the the uh if your adversary was an f-16 or something else like keep his nose low so that he wasn't going to try and extend the fight and, and uh, use his, his uh, power to his advantage. But as long as you could keep that nose pointing at him, you, could come, you, you would drive his behavior. And so my whole point when, when I was flying and when I was instructing back in the squadron and as a CO, it was you have to, you gotta, you gotta be pointing at the enemy and you gotta, it, you have to, whether it be long-range weapons employment or in the short-range uh, environment, 
you had to get the nose on and you had to keep the nose on and that would by itself drive behaviors that may not be in the best entrance of the uh, of the uh, airplane you're flying against so you in an F14A they never taught rudders I use rudders like a wild man um, because the roll rate was not all that all that fast as I mentioned earlier the pitch rate was hellacious if your nose was low you had these two uh, horizontal stabilizers that were as big as the A4 wings and you you could basically bury the stick and that nose would fly through the air uh, now you needed to be nose low to really be able to because you sold a lot of energy to do so but you could get a nose pointing on a adversary and then make him do something dumb and um, in the same way in the in the roll uh, uh, with the roll rate is just using the ailerons by itself in fact actually we didn't have really ailerons you had spoilers and in diagonal or horizontal stabs that would deflect and so it wasn't a very uh, efficient from an aerodynamic standpoint um, way to roll but if you used a lot of rudder with that that nose would would kick around and you never really not everybody learned that so if you were if you were flying slow those were the things you had to do to be able to position and roll inside another aircraft at a at a very effective rate um, and those were the those were the skills that that you know that not everybody learned and as I said earlier when you did it right it was magic and it was a it was you would come back from that that fight you know saying that was a good one I fought it to the limits of that airplane and the capabilities that it provided yeah okay so one more thing you the TF-30s you thought were adequate. I mean, you, you're not sitting here bitching about them over and over again. Obviously, everybody wants more thrust in a fighter. Yeah. But, Slammer, you you made it work with the TF-30s, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Now, now the TF-30 was – those weren't good engines. You had to fly the engines as well as, as, as much as you flew the airplane. Yeah. And there were many times that, that the engines bit me because – uh, they were really stall prone in certain yeah. situations. Um, yeah, of course, yeah. So if you avoided those positions and avoided, you know, some problems of the engine, you could get it to work to your advantage. And um, and as I said earlier, of all the A, Bs, and Ds that I flew, if I was going to fight the airplane, I like the A. I just because you could do more with it, and. Um, uh, and I'll tell you a, a quick story. So the uh, um, on uh, on the Kosovo combat cruise, we had a line period that uh, we were able to finish the line period, and the ship went up to um, someplace in France. But they sent two Tomcats and two Hornets to Sardinia um, to an air base called Decimamanu Air Base, and the uh, the uh, German Air Force was there. And we were able to spend five days fighting with the German Air Force. And they had MiG-29s and they had F-4s. And, and it was funny, and I've seen this in, through the years, is all of Europe are really impressed with the Tomcat. They, I think they just, the French, the Brits, the Germans, they just, they all love the Tomcat for whatever particular reason. I mean, it, it's a cool airplane. Um, 
not as maneuverable as a MiG-29, not as maneuverable as a Hornet, but it had kind of a cachet to it, like, I mean, that that they all sort of liked. Yeah, we know. And uh, <laughs> one day I was I was fighting a MiG-29, and the, um, um, and the fellow who was uh, was driving it was the MiG-29 demo pilot for the, the German Air Force. A funny guy, really funny guy, but a good stick. And uh, and so we have this one v one, and and uh, we started off what which what we would call a butterfly start. And so we'd be at eighteen thousand feet, three hundred fifty knots, and basically what it did was is set you up at a known energy level, and then you would turn away to get about three and a half miles. And then you would turn back in, so you'd have a neutral merge. But the difference was you didn't know the energy state of the other aircraft. You were co-altitude, but the energy state was different. And so once again, depending on how you wanted to fight that type of fight, um, you had to react to uh, the, the opponent's energy state just as much as the airplane. The first fight, I'll never forget, did not work out well for me. The uh, I I tried the aggressive pressure fight and uh, I failed miserably. I'll just put it that way. I failed miserably, and so Ouch. as I'm as we knock it off, we're flying back in to get into the same position, and I'm scrambling through my mind. What do I, I you know I, I what do I got to do? What do I got to do? And I realize, okay, I can't fight the air the airplane. I got to fight the pilot, and so I changed my tactic. And I, what I wanted him to do is commit into a position that would be unfavorable for him. And here you have a MiG-29 that has all the thrust in the world. It is a hellacious beast. And as we came back from the, uh, the butterfly start, I intentionally flew directly under him. And normally you want to fly as close as possible to take out all turning room and all lateral separation. Well, I came in what we would call showing some leg. I wanted him to bite. And so I came in below him at about 1,000 feet, and I knew he was aggressive as hell. And sure enough, he bit. So as he, as he went by me, I looked over my shoulder as I pitched the nose up, and I saw his two afterburners. And he is probably doing 500 knots straight downhill with both afterburners. And I was like, gotcha. And so I came up over the top, yep, you got it, Crunch, and repositioned my nose and am looking at a, a arcing MiG-29. But here's the thing about the MiG-29. When it had fuel in the center line, it was limited to maybe 8 Gs. And if the Germans overstressed, it was a really bad thing. That, that airplane would be down for several days. And as I'm coming over the top and he's looking at the nose of a Tomcat, he overstresses and calls, knock it off, knock it off, knock it off. Um, we join up, we come in, and he's going to do a straight in. And, and all he could talk about was fighting this Tomcat. And he forgot completely how he just destroyed me on the first fight. 
But the reputation was made at that point. That's it. And the Tomcat against the MiG-29 was the reputation was made. And it wasn't well because done. of the airplane. I got into his head. That's awesome. <laughs> so that's interesting. What a great story that is. You know, could- Wait a minute. Is that the source of a great HUD photo that, that was circulating on the internet a few years ago? Did, did uh, you ever see that? There's yeah, I don't know if it was HUD- mine. There, there was another. There, was another uh, there were a couple out there. And uh, I know mine was one of them. There but, you go. Uh, it's very impressive to see gun camera with a MIG yep. down below, right in the uh, in the reticle. That's awesome. So, so it's interesting. What it, what, so it's a, it, you. Uh, we were talking earlier about thinking three moves ahead, and I think this is a great example. You know, for anybody who's not familiar, the way you just described that, you can hear how you had thought it out ahead of time, and you had a plan at the merge that was not just one turn, two turn. You had a whole game plan going. And I'm going to bet, I'm going to make an assumption that you were coming in low, a thousand feet low, showing him some leg. I bet you were slow too, weren't you? Yes. Yeah. So that was yep. something that you didn't say was... because otherwise if you were fast, it wouldn't work. Right. Exactly. So- right. So there's a, there's a, there's an airspeed called corner airspeed. And that is where you get the maximum lift without over stressing the aircraft. And I came in probably 30 to 40 knots above that, which meant I had a little bit of, of airspeed to uh, to bleed off, but I could maximize my my roll or my pitch rate without overstressing the airplane, and so you were at the at the most maneuverable point of the the, uh, the energy management diagram that, that we would talk about. That's awesome. So yeah, so I came in at that at that airspeed, giving him some leg, committing him nose low. And he bit like a big dog. <laughs> and he had to do a straight in. And that night at the yep. bar, you won. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, and, even, and, and so I'll, I'll tell another story along that. I had a German in my back seat. <laughs> and so the, uh, as we were coming in on this straight in, so I'm flying on his wing. Um, the Tomcat is a single piloted airplane. You have a, a stick in the front seat. And you have a, a, a radar hand controller in the back seat, which kind of looks like a stick. But you can only fly the airplane from the front. Well, as we're coming in, it was pretty boring because it was just straight and level. We couldn't do any more maneuvering because he'd overstress his airplane so badly that I told my German, I go, would you like to fly the airplane? <laughs> he goes, Not this. Not this. Yep. And uh, he goes... Yeah, I, I didn't think you could. I go, well, I can I can set it up. We got a data link mode that I can give you control and you can do it with your you can fly the airplane with your hand controller. And I said, I can I can link us together and then you have to go half action on your trigger, which for me, now I put a little dot on my radar so I could see exactly what he was doing with his hand controller. And so I asked him if he was ready. He said, yeah, yeah. And I said, okay, your airplane. And when he moved the stick to the left, I could see the little uh, little uh, cursor move left, and I'd roll the airplane left. And he'd move up, you know, pull it back, and I'd move the airplane up. And so I was mimicking his moves on his hand controller. And he's going, oh, this is great. This is great. And then I'm <laughs> flying in a nice formation. We're doing a little maneuvering. And then I do a canopy roll just out of the blue. Did this, and I start screaming at him, what are you doing? What are you doing? I got the airplane. And he was so panicked, he didn't know what he had done. Uh, and I go, whoa, it's very sensitive. you got to be very careful back there. And uh, 
the uh, the, jer- the MiG-29 guy is kind of looking at us as we go over the top of him. And I go, you got to be very sensitive, be very careful. It's a very sensitive uh, control, but uh, would you like to do it again? <laughs> and he said, yes. <laughs> and so I did the same thing. Again. <laughs> at that point, he, he wanted to know more of it. Oh, um, man. Anyway, fun things you can do in a Tomcat. Oh, my Lord. That's hilarious. Well, hey, so the, the great. Uh, this, so that's funny. Now, when, when you were when you were at Topkin, did you fly the A4s and this F-16 and, and all this stuff, too? Yeah, you did. So we had the, we had the Tomcat there, F-14As. We had the A-4 Echo and the A-4 Super Fox, and then the one and two seat uh, Viper. Oh, okay. So we had all three. Gotcha. Gotcha. Now, yeah. uh, the A-4 Echo, single seat A-4 Super Fox was a two seat, right? Do I have that right? No, they're all one seat. No, the 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 Fox was um, was a single seat, but you had a P four hundred eight motor, and it was a beast. Nice. So you were you were almost one to one thrust to weight ratio at takeoff, and then very quickly at one to one thrust to weight. It was a it was a, an amazing airplane. Interest. So okay. So everybody loves to compare and contrast. A4 versus the F14, F16 versus the F14, you know, from a pilot's point of view. If if I was in an A4, well, the A4 had uh, the advantages it had was in the slow, uh, slow speed arena because you had these aerodynamic slats that would drop down when you were below probably 250 to 260 knots indicated. And then you'd also put the flaps down to maybe a third flaps. And you could get into this, you could get into a, a turning fight and you would, you would turn inside your own tail. It was, it was such a tight fight. So if you're, if you are going against an F-16 who's doing 450 knots and pulling nine G's, he's making this big arc through the sky, but at nine G's. You could be turning inside of him at two and a half G's and maintaining position the whole time. So you couldn't get away with it fighting Top Gun and, uh, F-16 guys. But if you're fighting Air Force F-16 guys, they didn't really understand that. And so you could really do some good work with, against them because they, they were taught you fight at a certain you know, speed to maximize the 9G, which gives you a great turn rate. But turn rate's not going to help you when you're fighting a one-circle fight and somebody's inside your turn circle. So that's what the A4 could do. It could get inside the turn circle. Uh, with the Tomcat, the, uh, the, the, the Tomcat would, would use separation to its advantage uh, unless you're going against the Fox, and then, then you had a little bit harder fight. Um, but if you were, if you, the, the A4 would want to draw you in as close as it could. Um, or if they if it was fighting multi ship, get out far enough that you lose sight of it, and then it would sneak in. And once you lost sight of it, you know it was going to be a, a rough day for you. So they they would either keep you in as tight as you could, or get out of range and uh, you'd lose them in the in the uh, in the sun or against the, the backdrop, and then they'd be able to you know come in at an advantage angle. F sixteen, you could do pretty much whatever you wanted. The thing had so much thrust to weight. It had such great uh, handling characteristics that a well-flown F-16, you really, really had your work cut out for you if you were going against that guy. So you could, you could do, you know, take advantage of your rate uh, advantage. Uh, you could 
do a vertical fight uh, because you're, you know, basically one-to-one thrust to weight. Um, it really, you could pretty much use whatever fight you wanted. And the Tomcat, you'd have to figure out, okay, how am I going to, uh, once I said earlier, is how do I keep pointing at him to make him react into a, so he's not getting the most, you know, advantage out of the, the capabilities that airframe gives him. Um, so each one you fought differently. Uh, each one, if you fought it well, you came back with a great sense of satisfaction. Um, and each one, I loved flying each of them for the characteristics and the capabilities they each offered. And I'd fight each one of them very differently. Nice. Nice. <laughs> Good summary, Slammer. Uh, you know, it makes me wish we could go out and uh, man up some jets and, and uh, take oh, yeah. this in the air, you know. Yeah. I mean, because two of those jets you're talking about were two-seaters, so I could enjoy the fight and, you know. Right. Um, okay. I'm thinking of uh, something else. So maybe maybe I think a little bit too much about social media and stuff, but I I, uh, I see things on on uh, enthusiast sites all the time. One of the Tomcats features that has a lot of uh, of interest is the glove veins. Mm-hmm. Slammer. I think everybody watching this. Pro- I'm looking for my Tomcat model. I'll, I'll get a picture, but I think everybody knows what glove veins are. Slammer. Do you have any thoughts on the glove veins? Well, I guess you go back to the design of the air, aircraft and what it was designed for. It was multi-mission at the design phase. So it was both an air-to-air superiority fighter, but also had an air-to-ground capability. And that capability was not used for the vast majority of my time in the Tomcat. Um, but if I remember right, the glove veins, which were... Um, triangular looking uh, flat surfaces that would come out of, here's my Tomcat. Oh, nice. They would come out right here and they would form kind of a, a little little uh, triangle off there. And the idea was, as I, under, as I remember it, was in the air-to-ground attack phase, you had these glove veins to make, there we are, to make your airplane that much more stable in an air-to-ground environment, um, they, since we weren't fighting in it, you know, using the aircraft in the air-to-ground uh, arena at that time, you you really didn't. They never did much for you. Um, sometimes you'd come in, in the break, you'd pull them out just because you thought it looked cooler. Yeah, uh, but that was yeah. about the only thing. And finally, they they. Uh, Basically secured them in and electrically disconnected them. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, glove veins addressed. <laughs> <laughs> well, I remember when, I, uh, you know, in, in the end, you know, the, the circuit breaker was pulled and there was a zip tie, collar tie on it and supposedly right. completely disconnected. No way could they could work. And then every once in a while, all of a sudden, like you'd be turning in, you know, doing a, uh, you know, just running up the hydraulics before starting the glove veins would move out. And you're like, how the... I thought I really? thought they were disconnected. <laughs> All right, that right. that's not supposed to happen. <laughs> All right, something's right. wrong here. We got to fix that. But um, yeah, for those who don't know, like there was a way to do it. Like you could put the if you put the wings back, so you on the left throttle, you 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 take the wings, you electrically sweep them back all the way to sixty eight, and then you had the the DLC maneuvering flap thumb wheel, and you pull that pull that uh, back, I guess it was, and the glove veins would come out. 
was kind of it was kind of cool. Well, the other thing is that you remember Crunch, and if I'd forgotten until just this moment, but you had a bomb mode. That's right. So you would you would select in bomb mode, and I think that was fifty five degrees mm-hmm. of yeah. uh, wing sweep, mm-hmm. yep. and then the glove aims would come out, and the idea was again to give the airplane the most stable platform as it's in a 45 degree dive or whatever back then it was all dumb bombs and it was i think intentionally designed to give it as much stability as possible in that air to ground arena well you know that's a great great point so in the it was designed for air to ground and air to air and for the first 25 years or so it was all air to air about 20 right around 20 20 years okay so from 74 to 90 whatever 90 whatever yeah. so somewhere around 90 whatever <laughs> we decided to get into the bombing yeah. and, and and i think all three of us were there at the time uh i was brand new uh you older guys had uh we're, we're you know getting to the end there. no i'm all, i'm kidding whatever. in any case uh but you know you had been there for from the beginning what's what's your feeling on the airplane you know, actually, now that I say that, you you then took it into combat in an air to ground mode in Kosovo, right? So, what's your feeling yep. on on the transition from air to air to almost exclusively air to ground in the end? Let's yep. talk about that. Well, so it's it. it um, I'll I'll step back to my first deployment. Uh, as I said, Don Bringle, Katie Bringle was the opso, and he was my flight lead. And when we were out in in. Uh, in the Arabian Gulf, North Arabian Gulf. Actually, we never went through the Straits of Hormuz, um, <clears throat> but it was during the tanker wars. Mm-hmm. And while we were there, there was a, a uh, the Iranians had had um, uh, hit a couple uh, tankers that we were escorting through the Strait of Hormuz, and because of that, there was a thing called Operation Praying Mantis, and. We, we were given, I think, a two-day window to sink a number of Iranian ships that were involved with the, uh, with the strikes they had against the, uh, the, uh, the U.S.-flagged uh, tankers. And at the time, we were flying escort for the A7s and A6s. Um, but there really wasn't an air-to-air threat, so the the uh, the only game in town was really the strike capability that the A6 brought with its uh, LGBs and its um, uh, precision weapons, and the A7s with their weapons. And so, over the course of about a 24-hour period, we had disabled three or four uh, ships and had sunk um, one or two. But it was it was all a, a strike-centered effort. And at the end of that, Don Bringle, Katie, wrote an article that I think was published in in the Top Gun magazine uh, about the need for the F-14 to get into the air-to-ground role. And he saw it back then, and we all made fun of him because we were all fighter guys. And and in Top Gun at the time, you couldn't say the B word for bombing or you were fined. We were all tough fighter guys. But he saw that back then that, that you aren't going to be in the game because there was no threat that would come out and, and engage the Tomcat. There was no air-to-air threat out there. And so if you weren't in the air-to-ground, you weren't in the fight. And so, you, so he saw that early on, and, and it was really led by the East Coast F-14 community where under Snort Snodgrass and others, they took it to a new level, in, uh, integrated the lantern targeting pod against 
Navy's wishes and certainly against Navair's wishes. And it was the most brilliant move that could have occurred for the, the, um, the value that the Tomcat brought. Because now you have an airplane with two crew, a lantern targeting pod, which was the same one the F-15 Strike Eagle had, and you had the endurance that the Tomcat naturally brought into the fight. So you, you could have precision targeting capability with a dedicated Rio. His whole purpose in life was managing that lantern targeting pod while the pilot's doing everything else. And we became a very effective strike platform. So much so that when we uh, showed up for Kosovo, Air Wing 8, we had already trained um, a number of crews to be Ford Air Control Airborne qualified. So FAC-8 qualified. And, and, uh, and there was a guy like Brew Brewrud and a couple others that really, you know, through NSOC days, and in that period between probably 93 to 96, really expanded the capability of the Tomcat in areas that we'd never considered before. And it was done up at NSOC uh, and then on the East Coast. And you started marrying these tactics, tactical employment, um, with this lantern targeting pod. And it was in incredible the capability that brought so when we showed up in kosovo we had two squadrons two tomcat a squadrons vf-14 top hatters that i was the xo and co of and the vf-41 black aces who you had um joey aquin and um dog bowser um and you had two uh c model hornet squadrons and right off the bat we were given uh by the uh the CFAC, given the, the um, operating area over Kosovo, while the rest of the U.S. Air Force, with their, with their tactical capabilities and their tactical strike capabilities, focused on the northern side of Serbia. And our, they were looking at good you know, uh, strategic level targets. We were looking for uh, tanks, artillery, little bitty things hidden behind churches. And... And as they were, as the Serbs were, were uh, you know, annihilating the, the, the uh, Kosovo Albanians, the Tomcat was the perfect airplane for that because you had this endurance, you had this fabulous targeting pod, and the F-18s, and it was wonderful. Air Wing 8 was a wonderful air wing, and the F-18 guys knew right off the bat, we'll be bomb trucks, you find the targets, we'll be the bomb trucks. And there That's was good. never a competition for resources or who's in charge. Yep. They saw that, that they weren't equipped to go after the types of targets we could find. And, uh, and it really was effective. Between R2, VF-14, and 41, they were, we did some fabulous, you know, FAC-A-type work. In addition to, to major strikes, which we would do in the, in the classic Fallon fashion, and one in particular was was really astonishing that earned a couple of people the silver star. But in the in the FAC A role, it was, you know, we just would plink these these uh, you know SA6s or Zoo 23s or um, tanks that we would find. And uh, and we had the legs, we had the visibility and and between the Tomcat and the A10s out there we really had a, 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 um, 
a uh, an effective campaign against that type of threat. So the Tomcat really evolved, and over the course of we had three line, I think either two or three line periods in Kosovo. As a as a Tomcat squadron, we dropped over four hundred thousand pounds of ordnance in one squadron. That's a wow. And That's the a sister lot. squadron That's a dropped four hundred thousand pounds as well. The whole air wing is a total total. Uh, was 1.6 million. But think about that from a fighter days. Yeah. You're dropping 400,000 pounds of ordnance and very effective precision ordnance. This isn't dropping bombs and hoping they hit close. This is you are hitting the specific dimpy that you're, you're aiming at. Uh, and it was really a phenomenal capability. Unfortunately, way too late in the, uh, the, the Tomcat's life. Uh, but better late than never, and, and boy, it became a, a incredible machine. And so this was this was all laser guided bombs because I don't think we were doing JDAM yet, were we at this point? Well, not the F fourteen never could. The B's oh. and the D's had the capability to uh, to release JDAM, and they were introduced probably around that time. But we did, we were not capable. Yeah, of I, I remember working with JDAM towards the end. I feel like I was. It was at, you know, like five, six years later, though, but I, I could be wrong. But could have the been. point is that this was these were laser-guided bombs using the lantern targeting pod on the F-14, where you're using the you're using the the FLIR system on the lantern to find the target, designate it with a laser, and some F-18 or yourself are dropping the bomb to hit some tactical target like a tank or an SA-6 or something. And basically, it's probably a high threat environment if you got SA-6s and ZSUs, right? Yeah, I mean, no, it was, and you had you had your prowlers there. Yeah. Um, oh, okay, cool. Okay. Oh, yeah. Still, I'm still and a little. I'm 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 ready for game. You know, I'm ready to go. I'd be nervous. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, this is. Uh, I've I've made sure I've got my gun. I I've probably got my my evasion chart. I got I got. I'm ready to go. Right, just in case. Cool. That's awesome. Okay, Slammer. We are we're we have covered a lot of great territory, but. And I'm about to wrap it up, but I want to ask you for one more topic, and that is DFCS, Digital Flight Control System. Mm -hmm. My last Tomcat flight was in 1998, never flew with DFCS. And I talked to a guy who said, bio, it made it a different airplane. What do you think? Can you talk about, uh, did you have DFCS? Oh, yeah. You flew? I mean, most of your time was without DFCS probably. Or uh, half. about half of the time. Okay. Yeah, it, it got introduced about halfway through my flying uh, flying career. So there were goods and bads, like everything. Ah. Um, the bad part of DFCS and the reason it was put in there was to really modulate the rudders. Now, as you know, and many people know, the Tomcat had a, a very, um, um, it, was, it had a propensity to get into a flat spin. And, and the DFCS would, would, would drive the flight controls in a manner that, that minimized the opportunity for you to get into a flat spin. Okay. But by All right. doing so, it also took away some of the advantages that, that I described earlier with rudders. Ah, And so okay. what it did, DFCS, it blended both rudder inputs with aileron inputs in diagonal tail, you know, as you move the, the stick left, diagonal tails, but you'd also had rudder inputs so that you had a, you would, you would fly the airplane in a, uh, in a balanced um, 
you, you turn the airplane in a balanced manner. And so it became um, a, much, a, a much safer airplane, but it did take away the ability for you to kick in a butt load of rudder to get that nose moving ah, in a, in a okay. slow All right. So it, it, uh, be, it made the airplane a much safer airplane, and, and it was the right decision to, to go that route. Uh, but it did take away some of the, the handling ca- uh, characteristics if you were trying to, you know, maneuver the airplane kind of at the edges of its envelope. Very good. Yeah. Okay, that's good perspective. Well, I will, I will say this, though. Um, DFCS in the slow speed environment was amazing. So in, in the in the analog flight controls, if you're down there at let's say 80 knots or something really slow, you know, oh, you're you're back and you're dropping. A lot of times you get into this wing rock, right? And you'd have that hard time with the wing rock. With DFCS, you click that on, it'd be steady. Even as you're falling out of the yeah. sky, it'd be rock solid. Yeah. And and I'm not saying that I necessarily did this, but somebody told me that if you had a DFCS airplane and turned off the roll sass, that you still could do all that stuff. I'm just saying I might have heard that. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've heard that. Today we can't try that one. <laughs> okay, I think, Crunch, I think uh, you're done probably. Yes, I sir, mean, I, I could sit here for another hour or two, but oh, yeah. uh, but we need to, to wrap it up sometime. Slammer? Thank you so much for uh, for joining us today. You have uh, taken this discussion. Uh, I mean, we the things that we've covered here, uh, we were just hoping to get some stick and throttle stuff, and we got that right. stick and rudder stuff. No, we got that, but we got a lot more. So uh, thank you very much for uh, sharing your experience and your opinions with us. Uh, you've been a great guest, and it's been our pleasure. Bio Crunch, thanks very much. Enjoyed the uh, time with you. Thanks, Slammer. Really appreciate it. This has been a, a real honor and a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks to our friends at Detail and Scale for supporting this episode of the F-14 Tomcast with a great giveaway. They're offering copies of their two new books, Colors and Markings of the F-14 Tomcat, to two winners. The book comes in two volumes, Atlantic Fleet and Pacific Fleet. The first winner gets their choice, and the second winner gets the other volume. Enter by sending an email to us at questions at f14tomcast.com and put detail and scale in the subject line. That is questions at f14tomcast.com and the subject line has to say detail and scale. Deadline for this giveaway is November 2nd, 2021. That's uh, Tuesday, November 2nd. And we'll select two winners and then put them in touch with detail and scale to deliver. Here's the fine print. Winners can choose either a traditional printed book or the digital version. And if you choose the printed book, it must be in a region where Amazon Print On Demand is available. After we select the winners, fulfillment will be handled by detail and scale. You got all that? Good luck. All right. So, hey, that was a great discussion talking about all the aspects of flying the F-14. You know, Bio, one of the things that Slammer brought up that we didn't discuss at the time was JOPA, J-O-P-A. Yeah. Uh, and just for the folks who are, who are listening who aren't, aren't familiar, the JOPA is the Junior Officer Protection Association. Well, it's it's kind of a fun little thing where the 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 O the O3s, the lieutenants and junior, they got almost like a union to stand up to the man to uh, you know the O4s and O5s, the COs and department heads. They're not part of the JOPA, and it's a it's kind of a fun little thing for uh, for all the the lieutenants. But uh, you know they work together as uh, strength in numbers. And the other thing he he uh, he brought up was uh, glove veins. 
And I think you had uh, some th thoughts on that. Thoughts? Crunch, I've got the Bible. Let's see, here we go. So I've got the uh, F-14 Natops manual. This is the oldest one that I have in my collection. It says the glove vanes, here's their purpose. They increase aircraft wing area and serve to reduce the excessive longitudinal stability encountered in the supersonic regime. So think about it. They reduce excessive stability. That means they increase maneuverability. Now they're automatically programmed to start out at uh, 1.35 Mach and they reach full extension at 1.45 Mach. So they're effective above 1.35. And as we know, the pilot could use uh, his thumb wheel to thumb them out. So I hope that uh, that fills in your uh, your, uh, any knowledge gaps you had about the glove veins. So that's it for today. I hope you'll join us in two weeks when we're going to talk to a former Iranian F-14 Tomcat pilot. So you don't want to miss that one. You've been listening to the F-14 Tomcast, part of the air combat experience brought to you by BVR Productions. Got a question for the show? Send an email to questions at f14tomcast.com or leave a message on our listener line at 877-MACH-101, extension 3. That's 877-622-4101, extension 3. For updates on this podcast and our other military aviation-themed shows, visit bvrpro.com and follow the Air Combat Experience on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.